This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So welcome everyone to our Bible study uh, tonight from Jerusalem, uh, Christchurch, Jerusalem, the uh, first Protestant church in the Middle East and an Anglican mission that is dedicated to the sharing of the good news of the Messiah with Jewish people. And uh, we also delight in wrestling with the uh, Jewish roots of the Christian faith. And uh, we continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy, the last words of Moses, as Moses is giving his last, last ditched effort, last speech, last commentary on Torah, as he is preparing the people of Israel to reflect the character of God, uh, which is which you see in the Torah when they actually enter the promised land. Uh, so he gives them prophecies, he gives them commentary, and, uh, and it's very interesting to see the way he um, he approaches the, the Holy Scriptures, the Torah, the Word of God. And we'll begin in a, in a timely and, and, and ancient fashion that when you gather in the name of God, you invite his presence, even though he is present already, and you do so by praying. So, Friday, our brother in Jerusalem, could you lead us in prayer? Sure. Abba Father, uh, Lord, we begin by praising you, blessing you, and thanking you for this day and for this group of people from all over the world that have come together to learn and to glean from every word, every line, every chapter of, of your word, which is eternal. Lord, bless each and every one of us, bring the Holy Spirit in with us to teach us, guide us, be with Aaron as he leads the group, Lord, and impart wisdom upon him. We ask these things, B'Shem Yeshua, in the mighty name of Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, Amen. Amen. All right, so first disclaimer, uh, which I'm sure you all know already, um, I don't know everything. Of course they don't. We, we all have had the opportunity to study the scriptures. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have a, a lot of wisdom imparted by the Spirit of God. So I learn too. So in case anybody hasn't noticed, I have a pen that I always bring with a piece of paper. So when you guys speak, trust me, I plagiarize you, okay? And you end up on uh, in sermons and notes in the future because uh, I fully expect to learn something tonight as well as everybody else. So uh, it's a delight. Now we managed whew, to get through two verses last week, but really the, the subject was quite big, so we had a really good and vibrant debate on it, and I had to go and, and uh, check, check some of our uh, discussions out with a group of uh, rabbi friends that I studied with, which I did. And um, <clears throat> here is a summary of our discussion last last week of Deuteronomy 14, essentially verses 1 and 2. Okay. So Moses spends a great deal of this chapter on the issue of dietary rules of clean and unclean foods for the people of Israel. Clean and unclean are not the best translations of Tahor and Tameh. More accurately, they should be rendered pure and impure. To put this discussion into context, for most of the ancient cultures of the world, eating had both a social and religious significance and meaning. Ancient cultures dwelt 
on mythologies of how the animals came to be, which ones were sacred, which ones could be consumed as food, and even how they even should be eaten. The sacred cow of India is a prime example. In Jewish tradition, this has become known as kashrut. The kosher diet comes from the word kasher, meaning fit. In this case, fit for consumption. Kosher rules have progressed from ancient Israel into modern society with many modifications and interpretations. The Israelites had come from Egypt. Now there, the diet in Egypt consisted of breads, a thick, nutritious beer bread in place of unhygienic water, vegetables such as cucumbers and salads. Depending on the timing of the exodus, and that actually is up for debate, various rulers of Egypt enforced a variety of dietary rules on their people. For the example, the Hyksos dynasty forbade the eating of pork. Other dynasties did not. Thus, dietary rules already exist for the Israelites, and these are expanded upon at Mount Sinai in the Torah. Now, contrary to widespread belief, which I used to hold when I was growing up, contrary to widespread belief, there are no health benefits connected to the purity food laws in the Torah. Societies that consume high amounts of pork, for example, the Chinese, have longer life expectancies than Arab nations, where pork is absolutely forbidden. Kosher rules also allow the consumption of insects, which are not the healthiest forms of food. Pure and impure classifications of animals existed pre-flood in Genesis, when animals were not consumed as food. And in Leviticus, we find laws regarding sexuality and diet discussed in the context of holiness. As noted, clean and unclean, or impure and pure, exist before Mount Sinai. And in the case of Noah, the classification is in relation to which animals could be used for sacrifice and which ones were not. Recall from the creation week, God says the world is good, yet he said that while it contained a pig. Following Noah's exit from the ark, he offers an olah, a burnt sacrifice. He is the first person in the Bible to do so. The second time the word olah is used is, is when it is describes Isaac as the burnt offering. It was also noted that subsequent and very subsequently discussed vigorously that the issue is one of impurity and not sin. During the prayers of Yom Kippur, which are called Al Chet, which means all sins, there is no confession for eating pork. As my Rabbi Mordecai recently said last week on this subject of clean and unclean, and I quote. It's an existential matter of choice. Choose to obey, even if you don't understand. But of course, you want to understand. And so you ask, why? Being in a state of impurity is not a sin. Impurity can occur through normal daily activity, 
such as coming into contact with death, any form of death that includes a dead fly or mosquito that you slap, or perhaps the monthly cycle for a woman. Impurity, as well as holiness, can be transmitted to people and or objects through physical contact. Therefore, if you eat impure food, you have become impure. Examples in the New Testament are of the holy head, head scarves of the apostles in the book of Acts, where they are performing holy acts and their very clothing, their head scarves, take their sweat and are then sent to foreign cities where they heal people. Holiness and impurity can be transmitted to other people through contact. The chapter does not begin with food, however but with the burial customs and the mourning of the dead. Disfigurement, apparently a common practice in other cultures, was forbidden for Israel. There are no instructions in the Torah for how to actually mourn the dead. The patriarchs are described as simply mourning the deceased without any explanation of how that actually was conducted. Even cremation is not discussed in the Torah as either forbidden or encouraged. Israel is in a relationship with the Lord of life, and this is to be reflected in the way the people are buried. Moses reminds the people that they are chosen from among all the peoples of the earth. Now, this reminds us of the Hebrew tension, Hebraic tension between God who shows no favoritism in texts that you find in Job, Proverbs, and the Psalms, and yet he still chooses and has preference for the weak, the orphan, the widow, the Levite, and Israel. The issue is one of responsibility. If God has regard for Israel as something special, and he does, therefore Israel should conduct themselves as something special. And in the case of mourning, this was not to engage in any form of disfigurement. They are, after all, made in the image of God. So that was a discussion of, our, of, uh, of last week's um, verses. So we will continue uh, with Moses' description of how the people of Israel are to be separate from the nations by engaging in food and tithing. And so uh, we'll pick it up at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 3, reading to the end. And so I read, uh, I'm reading in the NIV, it really actually doesn't matter what version you're reading, and it is preferable that when you go to Bible studies, you bring lots of versions to see where people are wrestling with various words that don't have an easy translation. So Deuteronomy 14, verse 3. Moses says in the name of God to the people of Israel, Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cuff, the cud. However, of those that chew the cud and those that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. 
although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean, although it has a divided hoof and it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales. But anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. You may not eat any clean bird. These, but these you may not eat. Or you may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, and any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screeched owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, my gosh, there's a lot of owls, the offspring, the, the uh, cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, uh, the hoopé, and the bat. All flying insects are unclean for you. You cannot eat them. But any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. You may not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and then you eat it. You may sell it, but, but you may sell it to any foreigner. You are the a holy people of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all of your fields that produce that year. Eat the tenth of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and the flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and you cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver. Take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose and use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. And then you and your household shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and you will rejoice. Do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment. Or inheritance of their own. Now at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That says the Lord. Okay. All right. And so uh, we begin. Um, so <clears throat> God has brought his people out of Egypt. They've already had Leviticus uh, 11, I think, lists a lot of what they can and can't, can't eat. They've been given the Torah. Moses stands before the people as they are about to enter the Holy Land. Uh, in conquest, and as part of uh, setting up this new culture that is to be a light to the nations, uh, they get their uh, a replay of their food laws. And Moses begins in verse 3 by saying, Do not eat any detestable thing. All right. So on some translations, <laughs> so some translations have... Um, abomination or abominable thing it is a it's quite a negative term so <clears throat> what is 
a detestable thing? Is there a, a blanket rule, do you think? Is there anything there in the list that we see that you can jump to? Or is it just somehow a list? What do you think, guys? Hi, Aaron. Okay. This is Karen. Um, I, it, it, it's amazing the detail as um, you can't eat this. I mean, it's very, it's very specific in the detail. Um, do, you know, do you know what the word detestable, what it is in Hebrew off the top of your head? Um, I'm just curious. No, I, didn't, I've got, I haven't got my Hebrew Bible in front of me. Um, I did look it up, and detestable abomination would be... Toevah. Toevah. Okay. Yeah, so abom abominable would be a good one. Okay. These are things that um, you may not eat uh, at something that's toevah. That, um, but yet, now remember, this is something made by God that at creation he said was good. So what's gone wrong? Or has anything gone wrong? Well, I think we touched on this last week a little bit, didn't we, with, when we were talking about the um, clean and unclean animals that went into the ark, and you indicated that it wasn't a matter of food, but of, of worship. Correct. Um, so you clean and unclean, Tameva Tafor, pre-exist uh, dietary food laws. So God creates the world, and he says it's good then he already has a classification of things that are clean and unclean. That doesn't make them good or bad. That just means they're clean and unclean. There is a difference. And, and, and Noah is instructed uh, to, to, sit, to know the difference between these two things and to bring more of one and less of another. But at this time in history, pre-flood, you can't eat any of them anyway. So, of course, the classifications of pure and impure have nothing to do with diet. Not only that, once you actually exit the ark, you know, sort of you know, 150 days later, or 190 days later, whichever it is, then um, the, the Lord says, you can eat whatever you like. So pure and impure back then had nothing to do with your diet. It had something else, and it was to do with um, sacrifice, the, the way that you actually got close to a holy God. And I think that's the key for what we today call kashrut, or these dietary laws that God is bringing to his people. Um, Aaron? Yeah. I've been thinking about that since our discussion last week. And I've also been thinking about how Israel was called to be a kingdom or a nation of priests. Yep. And so you have the idea that with the flood, you have clean and unclean, but it seems to be related only to sacrifices. So could it be that since they're a kingdom of priests, that they're only to eat those things that are acceptable for sacrifice? Quite possibly. This could be the way it, it, that is being linked in, in here. So they've got this oral history, or the, the written history in Genesis, that clean and unclean already exist in relation to sacrifice. And then you have these sacrifices that are going on in a tabernacle. And you're not allowed to sacrifice an unclean thing. And there are some very interesting stories in... Um, has anyone read the Maccabees? Uh, anyone at all? Yep. Okay, exactly. Okay. So there's like four different books of these. 
and uh, and there's um, the, the, there's one incident, although it's not actually recorded in the Maccabees, it's recorded in, um, I think it's Josephus, or one of the histories of the Jews, where the, the Jewish people are surrounded in the temple, and um, and it's an internal civil war against uh, 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 whoever they're fighting, the Greeks, I think, and um, they they ask, can you please bring up some, some offerings for the temple for sacrifice? And then first couple of days they send up clean animals, but then on the on the last day, the second day of the world, they send up unclean animals, uh, particularly pigs. And this is a, an insult to them to say, you know, you're not the real priests, you're not part of God, you can't uh, pretend to have this superficial religion. Um, even though we're fighting each other, to continue this, uh, this this sacrificial thing, it could be Aaron. You could be you could be on it that there's this um, relationship between Israel as a nation of priests to reflect the holiness to God, and their dietary rule will be well, you don't eat anything that that is listed as impure, unclean. Probably not the quite word. Remember, impurity is transmitted, so they become impure if they eat these things. And then in an impure state, they can't come before their God. So don't do it. Yet, being in an impure state is not a sin. And that's, that's something that for a lot of us, it's hard to wrestle with. Right? Particularly in, in Christian theology, we tend to think of everything as a sin or not a sin. Like there's, there's no gray. There's no such thing as a gray area. It's either a sin or not a sin. And if you're a sinner and you're dead, you're damned to hell. But in Jewish tradition, they, didn't, they had sins, absolutely. But they also had this concept of pure and impure. And things in natural life, which were good, such as conjugal relations with your wife, or things that aided in the production of life, like a, a woman's monthly cycle, would still make people impure. And, uh, and so you could become impure, but that wouldn't be um, hmm. uh, a sin. And so pure impure isn't, isn't a, a sin. And, and large sections of Israel actually walked around in a state of impurity. Yeah, I know that that's a good point. Um, because I was thinking about that, like, to touch a dead body renders someone impure. And if that would make you uh, a sinner then the worst sinner isn't, you know, Hitler. The worst sinner is the person at the, uh, who's embalming corpses right now. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. The, but that would be, that's right. So the, the guy who's embalming the, the corpses becomes impure, but he's not sinning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. All right, and, Aaron, I got a question. Go, Roddy. Who is, who is Israel? Who is this being written to at this point in time? Well, obviously, at this point in time, you're looking at a group of Israelites who have left Egypt. You're looking at the next generation in the desert. All right, so who are, the, who are those people? Is it not a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt? It is, yes. You're still with a mixed multitude. And when someone such as Kalev, whose father was the Kenzanite, yep. or Ruth, who decides to come into Israel... From the Moabites, do these not apply to these same people? They, here's the thing, Roddy. They do, and at the same time, you've got these interesting little segues where 
you have a dead uh, animal which you can't eat, which died sort of like with natural causes, but who's right. allowed to eat it? The stranger. Yes. But so you- is a stranger someone who has decided to cross over and accept and become a covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are That's they a good the question. heir or are they the stranger? Well, it's good. And, and we have absolutely no idea exactly who that is in reference to. So and we believe that, that the, the nations can be grafted into Israel, then are they for sure excluded from these same type of things? These are just yeah, questions no, I have. No, no, these, these are good questions. And I, I, we're gonna, I'm going to admit that a lot of the commentary that revolves around this doesn't have answers. And that's the reason why, just, just as, as, as um, uh, Mordecai uh, was reflecting last week with me as we were discussing this, he said, at the end of the day, it comes down to the existential choice. Are you going to obey God or not? And, um, and, and, um, and that doesn't mean you understand why. Like, he doesn't understand why God told him not to eat pork. <laughs> All right, he yeah, didn't got a clue, right? Um, there's all kinds of articles out there, and all of them, they're just interesting. But um, and he says, but that just means I just want to ask why. And so you keep looking, and you keep searching, and you keep um, you know, expanding. And um, mm-hmm. and in our tradition, in the modern period, we have a lot of new dietary rules that have cropped up uh, amongst our culture. Uh, there's this, you know, strong move uh, towards veganism, which I have to admit is still less than 5% of the population, just so everybody knows, okay? Veganism is not taking over the world and we're not all going to become uh, vegetarians. Um, but there is that move. There's obviously uh, this gluten-free uh, obsession that we now have, you know, uh, man shall not live on bread alone. Well, he can't because he's now gluten tolerant. Okay, so we can add a few extra Bible verses to our, to our Bible now, um, uh, and and and, and there's a, many people would like to uh, move towards a veganism based on a return to Eden idea, and yet um, I've never never read a gospel in which Yeshua sat down with his disciples at Passover and said, "I'm sorry, guys, but we're all having tofu tonight because we really really shouldn't be eating lamb." Um, Somehow that didn't quite, quite get in the in the text, um, but it but it's interesting that you have these dietary rules that are linked to holiness. Now we are holy. I'm hoping that we all can reflect on some of the verses that you find in the epistles, where the uh, apostles say, "You are a holy people." And um, so, how do we reflect that holiness to the world in our modern? eating fashion. Um, Aaron? Go for it, Shimshon. All right. Um, first, the, the mixed multitude um, description was only used when the people came out Correct. of Egypt. And after then, it was never used to describe the, the old multitude anymore. Correct. And do you know the yeah. rabbinic tradition as to why that is? Um, no, I don't know the rabbinic tradition, but I, I, I think um, I've not read any rabbinic sources on concerning that. But I think that it's because 
of when they crossed over, they, every other time they were all referred to as Israel. Because now you see that um, our chapter 14, how the Lord started it, he said, Banim Atam uh, Atem Al-Adonai. That means you are children of the Lord, referring to everybody. everybody. And it wasn't only, it wasn't only the um, Israelites and the Egyptians, because um, it was believed that um, Egypt then was a, a very mixed um, society because it was the cream, the cream of the world then. So we have people from every other region coming. And when you talk about mixed multitude, it means Israel, the Egyptians, and every other person that have migrated from their um, place. And they have seen the power of the God of Israel, and now they believe that this is the God, and they are going with the God. And after they left, they began to see this God as their God. And so God saw all of them as Israel. And if we read in the book of Isaiah, he said, let, let not the... Let not the Gentile, let not the Gohim that says, that joins himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will cut me out from his people. I think yeah. in Isaiah 56, he said that don't let the Gohim that says that I've joined myself to the Lord, yet the Lord will cut me away from his people. So I, I, I want to see it as the same people and the same rules applies to all of them. The word in Isaiah is nohri. It's a much stranger, stranger than the word gale. The Hebrew gale, in fact, it implies resident alien, meaning one who lives with you in the land. Nochri is one who lives outside the land and for some happenstance happened to be connected with Israel. We have um, Etai the Gittite, who was a Philistine from Gath, who wound up being David's chief uh, uh, bodyguard. He is called a Nochri by David. And Isaiah is in his prophecy with regard to the Nochri, is prophesying that the Utter strangers of Babylon can join the Jewish people in going back to Israel. So there's a, these are grades of strangeness. A ger is close, a resident, a familiar one who has taken up resident in the habits of the people of Israel and the land of Israel. Nochri is a complete stranger, uh, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul would say. As Paul would say, yep. Okay. And, right, um, and, and Shimshon, as you, uh, as you also note, that these strangers, ones that are close and ones that are far, but in this case, the ones that are close, they attach themselves also to the dietary rules of, of, of Israel, probably because of where they are and, and, and they do. And you see that also in uh, the God-fearer that you find in the Second Temple period. So these are Gentiles that attach themselves to synagogues in the Chutzaretz, and they have not become Jews, and they, and they do not follow all the Torah. They do not. They, it's not that they pick and choose, it's, it's, but it's kind of like they pick and choose. They, no one's 100% sure exactly which God fears in which different cities did which different things because there's no written evidence to say so other than that, that these God fearers would engage in, in, in practices that would relate to Israel, particularly to the Kela that they are uh, forming to, meaning Gentiles who were attracted to monotheism would, over time, begin to modify their diets. Okay? And um, why are they doing that? They're not doing it because they wake up one day and go, oh, my God, pork is just so evil, because that would be the question, why would God make it in the first place and then allow Gentiles to eat it? Rather, they would say, 
I'm trying to reflect the holiness of God and, and not only will my daily life, moral life and ethi ethical life look like it, so will my dietary life. Now, okay, so I, I have a, can I, can I ask a question? Yeah, um, sure. Okay, so if the, let's change it to pure and impure. Um, maybe the reason that they're both included is that, um, I don't know how to get this out, pure and, pure and impure, like think animals that are impure, are, it's like a, a typology of things that are not good in us. Okay, so maybe one reason of e doing the um, not eating the stuff that that every everything on the list we don't eat anymore. Like we don't eat insects. We don't we don't eat a lot of that stuff. Well, but actually, maybe, they do maybe in Israel. We, just letting you know, whenever they get plagues in this country, the locust plague. Um, I, I kid you not, the Orthodox Jews sell the darn things in the shul. Okay. No thanks. I'll pass. Um. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they spice them up. I mean, you can you can get curry in uh, grasshoppers, spicy grasshoppers, grasshoppers coated in chocolate. I mean, it's just awesome the way they've figured out how to make these things taste good. What What I was gonna say is that maybe you know it's a way of you you asked about you were asking about modern then maybe the impure stuff that we're not supposed to eat would be a way of, of like communicating to people that um, that the reason that it's there is to I don't know how to say what I'm thinking to get rid of stuff that's like not, ne not necessarily bad in us but um, stuff that we're not supposed to be doing or it's Elements it's, of our behavior that are ingrained in us, or so I don't know how to say. It's okay, well, we, we will try and help you, Karen. We're okay. in a relationship with a holy God, yes, yes, yes. and and we want to ref we want to reflect this holiness, which also has an element of, you know, what is trying to definitely be something that is opposite to unholy or or common. And uh, so there is these, this dietary rule that is given to the people of Israel and, um, and, uh, and the strangers that would attach themselves to Israel uh, on a large part adopted it, although not everybody. And, um, and it was in relation to purity and closeness and relationship to God. But it is not, and I have to stress this, a sin. It's forbidden. I know that seems strange because we often think of, gosh, anything that's forbidden, if you cross it, it must be a sin. Well, not necessarily. It's forbidden to enter the presence of God having touched death. Well, obviously, that's something you're not going to do because you might disappear in a big puff of smoke. But burying a dead body who happens to be your dad is still a good thing to do. But now I'm tainted with death and I need to, to, to fix this up. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, Moses um, uh, stands before the people and he says, the laws that we're giving, the laws that we're going to be discussing, um, this is going to reveal wisdom and understanding to the foreign nations. The foreign nations are going to look at the children of Israel and go, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing it? And not only that, the laws that you seem to have placed upon yourselves or that your God has given you, they're actually quite good. 
and it reflects a, a wisdom. That doesn't mean always that you understand what that wisdom is. But in relation to a modern diet, now remember that uh, for many, many believers, they would consider their body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, what do we see a large segment of the population, particularly in the West, eating? Pork. Pork, yeah. Yeah, yeah and everyone leapt to pork, okay? What else? Hi, my Okay. What do they eat? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Sugar. And a large amount of it. Have you seen the size of some of our brothers and sisters? The temp my, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, some people's temples are a hell of a lot larger than some other people's. And so they obviously have more of the Holy Spirit than some other people. And uh, it's very interesting that you get these lovely brothers and sisters who will tell you all about how various sins should or should not be done and then turn around and uh, uh, are gluttons, particularly of food that's not good for them. Now, um, there is a, a, there is, while there is no clinical definitive health benefit for not or eating pork one way or the other, there is for fasting. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Depriving your body of food can actually have a health benefit for you, and uh, which is an interesting thing. And so for us as believers and followers of the Messiah and the Lord, and we are in a relationship with a holy God, then perhaps our diet should also reflect this in some way. And, uh, and remembering that just because you eat and drink large amounts of Coke or Diet Coke or something, that is not going to send you to hell. Right? It might not be good for you. It might not reflect a healthy relationship to the world between you and God. But it is not a sin. Remember, impure and pure are not related to, to, to sin. They are choices. Um. And so please, yeah, you go, brother. Yeah, um, I, th I think for me, I, I would like to view it in terms of um, um, referring to the community mm -hmm. because um, if somebody eats something that is impure and becomes impure and um, it transmits it into, uh, transfers it into on, so another person and, this, and it finally ends up in the temple, then there is yeah. a consequence for the whole community. Because if we get to the temple, then it's going to cause a problem for the whole community. Uh, you could see that the way that um, Peter, even though in the dream he had, um, he heard the voice of God. He knew this was God speaking, but he was still adamant not to eat those um, things that he considered um, non-kosher. And so yeah. you could see that, it, um, and you know, very Jewish lives are very community life. They don't just think about themselves, they think in the how the community will be able to serve God. Then um, some other thing that seems to be very strange is that how come we have such a large amount of pig in, um, in Mark chapter 5 that um, Yeshua had to cast um, the demons into <laughs> them? I mean, this is Israel, and um, 
it's supposed to be a holy land. They don't need to raise such animals if they don't eat them. So yeah. how come we have it? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, no, great question. Yeah, you get to the second Neville period and this place just fills up with pigs. Okay. Aria, do you have an idea on the history of that? Yes, he was, uh, we would say he was Bechutz Lahavitz at the time. He had left the land of <laughs> Israel. He was in the Decapolis League among all those Gentiles and they had pigs. Lots of them. We could note, however, that he could was probably not entirely unaware of the potential fate of those pigs when he did what he did. Yeah, I I I, I liked looking at the um, at that text, at that uh, story in the Gospels, because it says that they crossed the boat. So you know, there's Yeshua in in the boat with his disciples, but the text only says that only Yeshua gets out the boat. Right, the disciples are like, we ain't treading any any going anywhere near this uh, this pagan land. This is this is unholy territory. We're we're not going to touch it. So Yeshua wanders off, you know, up a hill somewhere. The disciples sort of sit in the boat, going, wonder what our master is doing. And then they look up, and then they see two thousand pigs, you know, running towards <laughs> them. Okay, so these poor guys are now sitting in a boat that is now surrounded by all these dead pigs, and Yeshua is just wandering back. And you can just imagine Peter going, the hell are you doing, dude? Where did that come from? I mean, what's going on? You know, and, uh, uh, and he's got a really good opportunity to give him a good teaching. You know? But, uh, yeah, they, they, Peter does not step up to eat unclean foods. And Paul never told Jews they should now eat pork. Okay. There are rabbinic transit traditions, which we mentioned last week, where... Uh, even rabbis themselves discuss that when the Messiah comes, what happens to the Torah? How does it change? How does it morph? Like what happens when, when um, uh, the, the Messiah actually appears? And, um, and so you do end up with some traditions that say, no, the Torah is going to stay exactly the same and nothing's going to change. Well, we should recall that Jesus did, in fact, declare all foods clean. Correct. Because the Messiah, according to Rabbi Rashi, and he quotes, I think he quotes a verse in Isaiah, a very obscure one, and he says that in the days of the Messiah, people returned to Israel, that the things that we thought were impure and pure now no longer have that same sort of effect. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we all run around and immediately grab the nearest Jewish guy and start shoving a bacon and cheese sandwich down their throat. That is inappropriate. Okay? Um, uh, that to lead a holy life and, and in a relationship to God is something that we do need to model, not only in our ethics, but also in our diets. And that includes, okay, and I'm going to say it again, learning how to do some fasting and stop eating these large amounts of other stuff that sort of expand our bodies, uh, the temples of the Holy Spirit. To, to levels that they probably shouldn't be. None of this is a sin, okay? It is, it is a relationship of pure and, 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 and impure and, uh, and a reflection of how we, how we go towards, uh, towards God. Gluttony okay. is actually idolatry, eh? Sorry? Say that gluttony. again, Sharon. Gluttony, I think, is described as idolatry, one of the sins there in the New Testament, I think. Um, gluttony. Gluttony is listed as one of the seven deadly sins by the Catholic Church. However, the seven deadly sins are not 
listed by verse, they're listed by, by um, inference. No, so I don't mean that. I mean the passage in the New Testament. Um, but anyways, I'd have to look it up. That's okay. Keep going. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but, um, but it is interesting that, uh, uh, and I don't want to always harp on Americans. That's not really fair because they, they, um, they're absolutely lovely brothers and sisters and have really shone the light in the, for the gospel when a lot of other nations uh, stopped. Um, but we were in this, in uh, North, Aaron, we were in North Carolina in uh, Wilmington and we were at a, um, a, uh, a, a, a pastor's conference for the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And uh, so Michelle and I are sitting in a room with a, a lot of these American pastors and um, the vast majority of them were heavy set. Let's, let's say that. And, uh, yeah, and you sort of sat there and, and they were talking all about, um, you know, good Christian living and not swearing and not drinking and not doing all these other, you know, not dancing and not doing all the other really cool things. But then you sort of looked at them and get, yeah, well, man, but, you know, that, you're not leading exactly the most healthiest of lifestyles. But, again, that's probably um, uh, a debate best said in, 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 uh, in gentle terms. Um, because this, again, it's not it's not listed as a thing that's going to send you to the to the abyss. All right. So you have a very long list of things that are detestable or an abomination to the Lord, even though God has made all these things. So these things at creation were called good, but for the people of Israel at this time, as a reflection. Of, uh, of their relationship with the Lord and as a light to the nations, they have a diet, special diet, which is not uncommon at all. All nations had a type of diet uh, in the ancient world reflecting their beliefs. Um, the issue at the end where in verse 21 where if you find something dead, you can't eat it. Now, why would that? be a prohibition? Why would that sentence need to be in there, do you think? What would be the problem with eating a dead animal, even if it was a clean one or a pure animal for consumption? Blood. Blood. Well done, Roddy. Yes, the, um, they were very concerned about how uh, you get rid of blood. And a live animal has to be alive for the uh, after you cut, uh, kill it or chop its head off or cut its neck, whichever, for the heart to pump out uh, the blood. So there was um, this sort of idea of, you know, the, the desperate need uh, to get rid of uh, the blood of the animal. All right. Um, what do you think of the verse, you shall not cook a young goat in its mother's milk? Any ideas? I think that a place to me. I mean, it, it looks... It's, it, it looks like almost an afterthought to the rest of the, the, uh, okay. that part. All right. Sure. Okay. Yep. You get a nice long list of uh, things you can't eat and not eat and very detailed. And then there's this little discussion about making sure, you know, you bleed animals because we've already handled the issue of blood. Yeah. And then you get this sort of verse and you won't do this. Uh, interesting. I understood. I, I heard that that was a Canaanite practice, and you know, um, and so basically it was a way to help avoid the idolatry associated with it. 
Okay. Yeah. Anyone else heard that kind of idea as well? I guess so. Um, Not a problem. Just don't do it. <laughs> I, like, I like that, Marty. Yeah. This is what it says. Just don't do it. Excellent. It's not, yeah. it's, why, why cook the, uh, the baby in his mother's milk? Yeah. You know, the extrapolation then, of that is where the problems come in. Sure. The, um, it does the appear, cooks. but again, the sources are actually very light on this, and they tend to all quote each other. Because um, obviously when you start talking about ancient pagan cultures, particularly Canaanite, you don't have a lot of material to go on because they don't exist. And it's not like they left a library. Um, so it, it does appear, but it might not be true, that it's an ancient pagan fertility practice within, uh, within the realms of this area. Not just specific to Canaanite, because Israel hasn't entered, entered their land yet, but also with other cultures. It's, it's not Egyptian, okay? Um, but uh, that, that it seemed that as part of a fertility ritual, that is, you know, I would like to get my wife pregnant so I can have lots of kids, um, what we will do is we will have a banquet where we eat this special meal, which is a mother-daughter uh, relationship where you cook the daughter in its mother's milk um, uh, thing. So at the end of the day, regardless of, of where the, uh, or which pagan practice actually is in, in actual real um, usage, the, the idea is this demonstrates don't be like them. This demonstrates a separation, which is what you find in the burial custom and what you find in dietary laws. It's a separation. How do you be a light to the nations? Well, you look kind of different. Um, as you know, many, many believers will say, we're not of the world, we're in the world. True. Just be very sure that when you're in the world, you don't look like it exactly, that you do somehow look a little different. Um, and as Roddy has said, um, it seems to have skewed uh, in today's practice where not only do we not cook a young goat in its mother's milk, but we have um, now suddenly created multiple kitchens, cutlery, and dishes uh, in relation to, to kosher. So many fences, right, for just one, uh, yeah. one, one, one rule. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. There's actually a Jewish joke. I mean, I, I, when we, Michelle and I were uh, first in Israel and looking for apartments, you would go into these kitchens and you would see these impossibly high shelves. And, you know, you'd need ladders to go and get to them. Oh, what, the, what the heck are they storing up there? And that was their, you know, the separation of milk and meat dishes, their separation of Passover and non-Passover dishes. You know, everything had was separate put apart and uh, sometimes you even had two fridges you had the milk fridge and the meat fridge and, you know these kinds of things it's quite quite, uh, quite involved 
Iran, um, I think, uh, well, we, it, the, the text doesn't really say that, and um, I don't so much agree with um, so much of the separation, because if you look um, with um, Abraham, Abraham entertained the angels, and he gave them kid, and at the same time he gave them milk. And, yeah, and they didn't separate them before they ate. Absolutely. The Torah just told us they ate, yeah. Yep. Yep, the, the incident of Abraham feeding essentially the divine uh, visitors, uh, milk and meat together, uh, is an interesting one. Um, the, the Jewish commentaries jump all over the ground trying to have Abraham <laughs> um, keep kosher, modern kosher, not what we would call biblical kosher. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting one how they do that. They... they the, the, I do enjoy Jewish humor that likes to make a joke of, their, of the way that they overemphasize some of these rules. And one of these uh, Jewish jokes is um, you know, Moses is, is getting the Torah from God and he's dictating it and chiseling it down. And he comes up with the rule, you shall not cook a goat in its mother's milk. And Moses goes, Okay, Lord, um, so does that mean that if I want to eat meat and then have a glass of milk, I need to wait three hours? And God says, no, I mean, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And, God, and Moses is like, okay. So does that mean that, um, that if I have a hamburger, can I have cheese on top of it or not? And God's like, uh, no, I mean, don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And Moses is like, right, right, right. So does that mean that I've got to separate my two kitchens and have you know, two fridges? And God's like, oh, for crying out loud, do whatever you want to do. I don't care. You know, um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the commentary on themselves that while they acknowledge that they've created these fences around the Torah, they also acknowledge at the very same time they might be a little extreme. Okay? And... Uh, and uh, uh, and so, who took out again? Who's going next? No, it's just a, a comment. I had heard something about, you know, if you swallow a gnat, you just had a milkshake, you know, and 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 uh, yeah. There's, I mean, it gets to the point of that minuteness of the right. Yeah, yes. it's what, crazy. What, what yeah. were the fence? We have to remember what were the fences intended to do, right? The, they, the, the acknowledgement that the Torah of God was divine instruction. It was good. It was beneficial. doesn't always mean we understood what we were supposed to do with it. We don't always understand every rule. Uh, and we don't always, almost always like every rule. Where when we get a bit further into Deuteronomy, we're going to come to some rules which tell us uh, to kill people. You're like, hang on a second, I don't like those rules. Uh, laws number 598, 599, and 600 of the 613 laws are to do with Amalek. And we will encounter them. And uh, those rules are, remember what Amalek did, don't forget what Amalek did, and if you ever find Amalek, make sure you kill him. You go, oh my gosh. And so... The, the, you, you, you build these fences around the Torah even to, to protect those rules, even though you don't 100% understand what you're doing. Uh, and they acknowledge that we don't always un understand what we're doing. And also acknowledge that maybe we've gone a little, a little too far. 
but can they go back? Not always easy. Um, you do find it, it's not, it's not just fair to always point stones at, uh, at rabbinic uh, tradition because all traditions do it, whether it's Christian, non-Christian, Muslim, whatever you want to talk about it, Hindu. Um, you ended up with, with cultures that, you know, we couldn't dance, we couldn't smoke, we couldn't, you know, drink, we couldn't, you know, all, all kinds of things that we couldn't do um, because that would be a sin. Forgetting it's not a sin, it just has the appearance and maybe even the prospect of producing impurity in us, which might affect our relationship with the Lord, but it itself it, isn't a sin. And it's interesting, the whole concept of, you know, the fencing, maybe, you know, I've heard it's, you know, people have mentioned, well, the, the fear of maybe going back to another exile of not properly obeying the word. Uh, so let's protect it just to be extra sure that we don't want to go back into a diaspora or leaving it in the sense, or I guess going to exile. And so let's protect it yeah. more just to make sure we... We're doing it the right way. Yes, Maybe we didn't do it the right way the last time. And that's a, and that's a more modern interpretation because obviously they're back in the land. You know, they weren't thinking about this 100 years ago because they weren't here. But now that they are here, there's the, there is a, a movement. And it's, it's not big, it's small, but it is here and it's vocal, you know, about making sure everyone likes Sabbath candles, making sure that everyone, you know, um, uh, is, is keeping kosher, make sure that everyone is... is uh, uh, Giving their stakar and giving their charity and not withholding um, stuff, which is actually the next topic: tithes. You know, um, the giving of uh, of, of charity. Uh, Before we get to that, I just have one uh, comment or question about um, where it, in the Gospels it says, "And Jesus declared all food clean." Um, the context of, of him saying that they. His disciples were being criticized for eating with unwashed hands. Correct. So it was the impurity or uncleanness of eating with unwashed hands. There wasn't any discussion of what type of food they were eating. And you never read that of Jesus being criticized for the types of foods he is telling anybody to eat or not eat. So I think that's been kind of taken out of context. Yeah, so in the, in the Second Temple period, in the late Second Temple period, there were boundary issues with all these fences about what you could and couldn't eat. And one of the big deals was eating Gentile food. And uh, so Jews could not eat at tables that where food was pr pr produced by a Gentile, even if it was kosher. And, uh, and that's actually still true of today, by the way. Um, if you are hosting a function uh, with Jewish people, um, and kosher food is produced by kosher Jews, not by non-Jews. Um, and, uh, and, and that you see in the book of Acts, and in the Gospels, in the book of Acts particularly, with Peter beginning to eat with the Gentile Cornelius. That doesn't mean he eats forbidden food. Remember, Forbidden foods, forbidden. Yeah. Uh, kosher rules and what was what you could and couldn't, what was clean and uh, what was uh, uh, acceptable at, the, at that time in terms of like the fence is is different. And so Paul never says to Jews, "Now you should all eat pork." Okay. That doesn't mean he turned around to Gentiles and said, "Oh my gosh, what the heck are you doing? Don't do that." 
Okay? Instead, what you get is, is rules of, you know, if you're, if you're a vegetarian and you're invited over to a, a guy's house and, uh, and he's a meat eater, please don't serve the vegetarian a steak. Okay? The vegetarian is, is, is allowed to eat meat, but don't trip him up. You know, in, in this case, and insult him in this way. Um, and so food becomes an interesting uh, deal in the Second Temple period because it separated Jews and Gentiles. So Jewish brothers and Gentile brothers, who both believed in the Messiah, couldn't have table fellowship because of these crazy fences that we had built around ourselves. And the apostles broke that down. They said, that's not on anymore. That doesn't mean... Okay, that uh, they turned around and, and made a blanket rule, you can now all eat pork. Some did, some didn't. But uh, remember, it's a purity issue and an impurity issue in a relationship that you have with the Lord. And it reflects on your light to the nations and on Gentiles. So if you are a vegetarian and you would like to use that as a way to try and share the gospel, Think how you do that. If you are a beef eater and all you do is eat meat and, you, and lots of it, and you think that that is a reflection of how you can share the light to the nations, be careful. Okay? Um, so I, I would uh, just advise us all to consider um, uh, our, our purity before the Lord in what we eat and drink and in relationship to, uh, to fasting. Um, okay, so I have a, a question in relation to um, detailed instructions about the hoof and not chewing the cud. Uh, I don't ha I'll have to ask that one privately um, next, next week when I see Mordecai. I'll give him a list as to what really does that mean or why do they think that those, those rules were there. But in the readings that I have done, in my studies, I haven't actually ever seen a dis discussion thereof. All right. So, eating of food and in the way we bury our dead is a reflection of our holiness towards God and, and his closeness and presence within our community uh, and the way we honor him as the Lord of life through the not eating of blood to the nations that are around us. In the same context, we now get the giving of tithes. So not only is our diet and our burial customs part of our holy, holy life, but also our finances and the way we uh, uh, manage our finances. So finances are actually a spiritual issue. Now, isn't that interesting? Okay. All right, so let's have a look. Verse uh, 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tenth of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Okay. So what do you guys make of those two verses? Is there anything there that jumps out? It's interesting in the Hebrew, it, uh, it, it doubles up the first 
the first words. Um, uh, the, the word for tenth, okay, and uh, to be sure, or some translations will say truly, okay, are, are, are the same. Okay? They're, they're, they're the same root. Um, and uh, why does it seem to do that? Seems to say, sorry? It, said, it, it usually does that when it's for emphasis, isn't it? That's the um, standard um, line of people who, you know, 2,000 years after the fact, um, that sort of say anything to where you see a double is there for emphasis. Sure. And what's the emphasis of? It's God saying literally, truly, 10% 10%. You don't fudge this. Okay? This is not a, um, you know, I'll, I'll give 8% I'll give and that'll be good enough. Right, you know, um, there is a warning in the New Testament, remember, where Yeshua says, You guys are tithing the dill and the cumin, but you're neglecting the weighty matters. But there is an element of our financial situation that reflects a spiritual life in the giving of a tithe. Now, in the modern period, and I will speak now in, in the Christian world. We often say things like, you know, um, do I really have to tithe? Tithing's not in the New Testament. How much do I really have to give? Now, if you're asking the question, how much do I have to give to God? Think about where your heart is. What you're really saying is, how little do I have to give? Think about the spiritual implication of that sentence. God, the King of the universe, who has fearfully and wonderfully made us and has sent his Son and has spared absolutely nothing, his creation then turns around and says, thank you very much, now how little do I have to give back? It's a, and so, when you get to Moses, standing before the people, he knows there's a human problem, in the desire to keep back from the Lord. And so he doubles up by saying, truly, when you give a tithe, okay? give it truly, give it honestly, give it completely. Don't try and trick the Lord in this. And so it has, it is a physical action, but it is a spiritual issue. So on this respect, faith and action, are very much going hand in hand. And so God, uh, Moses, uh, God through Moses, is asking for this, this tenth. And what do you do with this money? Okay. You, you grow, you harvest, you work with your hands. Um, what do you do with it, guys? What does it say? It's there that um, you shall consume the tithe of your new grain and new wine and the first name of your herds and flocks in the presence of your God in the place where he chooses to establish his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God forever. Yes. So the first thing you get to do with your tithe is you get to consume part of it anyway. Which is Hallelujah. Yeah, I know. Isn't that, a, isn't that an interesting thing? You know, it's like... Um, in the place where God will choose. So 
obviously, we've got two places, Shiloh and after Shiloh, we get Jerusalem and the temple. Um, and so you get this idea of come before the Lord and eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. So there's this, this idea of, of eating and drinking in God's presence, sort of very strong idea of, uh, of communion. And you can see why in the, in the early, early, what we today call the early church, but the early followers of the Messiah, they had a big emphasis on eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord. Though they were nowhere near Jerusalem, you know, they, they sort of idea that the, the body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so eating and drinking correctly in his presence was a big deal. Here's in the New Testament as an issue. Uh, and today is reflected in um, what we, in the traditional circles, call the communion, the idea of eating and drinking together in the, in the presence of the Lord. Big deal. Okay. But, but, but first, Aaron, yep. Yeah, but today we don't, we don't, um, it's not the standard um, practice in, in churches for people to no. come and consume their time. Yeah, acts to pay it. Um, in fact, I tried to do some research on it. The way the rabbis um, see the tithing is that you set apart the tenth of your income, and from there you can do this um, zadakah. From there you can give your offering. From there you could do every other thing. You could do your charity from there, but it's set apart. But in the Christian circuit, um, it's more traditional that you take the whole tithe and you pay it, and um, and after then, if you want to do um, your good deeds, then you have to go and look for another source to do the yeah. good so, <laughs> yeah. so it's a bit uh, yeah there it, what yeah Shimshan, you're you've you're 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 highlighting an incredibly interesting issue of what really are our financial obligations and or the way we should look at our finances in relation to the spirit world uh how do we approach the physical and the spiritual and marry them together? Uh, in this case, you've, in this case particularly, you've got a tithe that um, you consume, obviously part of. You're not going to be able to consume everything because that would be, you would probably physically die. And, um, and so you would then give the rest over to the priests in the temple and the, and the working of the board. Um, but the, there is a caveat. You do this so that you can learn to revere the Lord your God always. So this has, um, and it, it, it's actually, it teaches you to learn to fear and honour the Lord. That I work the ground, I work my job, I'm a good blacksmith, I make horses, uh, shoes for horses, I'm very good at it. But all of my skill, all of my cunning, all of my effort comes from the Lord. And, and I have to acknowledge this in some way. So there's this element of fear and loving God in the action of giving a tithe. And, uh, and, and there's, there, it doesn't say, now go to the temple, uh, eat a cow, give the rest away and say a following prayer. There, there isn't a formula per se. Those are the things that we create. And, and they do. They create all kinds of great prayers, all kinds of great psalms to sing, all kinds of great things to sort of help you acknowledge that um, what I'm giving to God was actually already his anyway. So uh, this isn't a bribe. 
this isn't a, a you know something that makes God now he loves me even more than he did before there's there's no sort of uh, uh, thing like that rather this action teaches me to honor and fear the Lord um, then there's a caveat now many of the of the commands in the Bible, you, they're not always easy to understand uh, or, or why you do them. But sometimes you also get some very common sense parts to God, yes? Like no one's always 100% sure why we can't have two different cloths in a, in a shirt. Um, uh, but here, obviously, in very common sense, if the place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and you can't carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away and, by the way, you're so darn rich now, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. I mean, isn't that nice? Okay. Cattle, sheep, wine, fermented drink, whatever you wish. And then... You and your household, in a community, you eat in the presence of the Lord and rejoice. You have that emotion of rejoicing. In the presence of the God of life, there's no sadness, there's no tears. There is this emphasis on, on joy. Uh, so you take control of your emotion. Um, this commandment is horrible. God is commanding us to take 10%. Set it aside for him, but yet you and your family spend it any way you want to, eating and drinking and enjoying. Yes. Horrible. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right, Roddy. It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, what kind of God would do such a thing for his people? Obviously, one that doesn't like them, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And not only that, you then get this next interesting verse that just shows you how God views sacrifices and tithes and offerings because he says now do not neglect the Levite living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own and uh, and so you've also got when you give to sac the sacrifices to take care of the widows and the orphans and the stranger and now also the Levite so God has a compassion and a feeling for the, the weak one of society, right? Even though God shows no favoritism, at the same time, he has an emphasis on special groups of people. And this is classic Hebrew tension, is that God loves everybody equally, absolutely, but let's make sure we take care of the weak, okay? And, uh, and so there's this... If this is the character of God, this is the way we need also, if we want to be a reflection of the Lord, we also uh, we, we, do, we take part in it. And so our physical actions reflect our spiritual heart. Okay? Um, and then in verse 28, there is this interesting uh, addition. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce store it in your towns okay don't bring it to jerusalem so that the levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigner 
Now that's interesting, okay, right? The, 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 the non-Jew, the Gentile, who has living in our land, he's a resident, for whatever reason, we don't know, could be business, could be religion, could be he's, he's running away from uh, as a refugee. Whatever reason, he is now part of the community, but he's not Jewish. The fatherless, right, the orphan, those that haven't got a male protector, and the widow, also again no male protector, the weak members of the society, who live in your towns, they get to come and eat and be satisfied. So that, again, the caveat, the Lord your God could bless you in all the work of your hands. So there's this very interesting spiritual dynamic that is attached to a physical, actual action. The Lord has blessed the people. The people are going to engage in this tithe. God says, you know, truly, truly, like don't fudge this. Okay, I know where your heart is. If you're asking me how much I really have to give, there's a problem with your heart. Just don't ask, okay? It's a tenth. Why, why are we even debating it? And uh, part of it, you come to be with me. We enjoy each other's company, me, your household. Everyone's really happy. We're all rejoicing. I'm the Lord of life. I'll show you how much I love you. We get to do it in Jerusalem where I've put my name. We get to share it with the priests who are serving me and reflecting my character, one hopes. And, uh, and then every three years, we make sure that that tithe is being dispersed to the weak the ones who don't have fields, who don't have crops, who don't have male protectors, who are often too bullied by, um, by wicked judges and, and, uh, and sharks and charlatans. Uh, God makes sure that uh, people who are trying to reflect his character turn around and say, ma'am, you're coming to eat with me tonight. Okay? You're, you're coming to be with my family. And, uh, and, and so is that stranger who's been hanging out with us for a couple of years and has started up a new blacksmith. We're going to have him over as well. And, uh, and then we're going to have a really good discussion on pure and impure and what it really means to put goat in its mother's milk, okay? And, um, and, and, and we're going to debate until the wee hours of the morning. But God has set up this very interesting uh, dynamic within his people to reflect his character. And he's, one of his characters is, is this concern for the weak. Though he shows no favoritism, he still cares for Israel, the nations, the foreigners, and, uh, and the weak. And there's a caveat, once again, that in, as, as faith and action are linked, as obedience can lead to blessing. In this case, the blessing is, if you're doing these things, the Lord your God will bless you and all the work of your hand. So there is this, um, this, this strong emphasis on, uh, on reflecting the character of God and that having a blessing. And actually, why would it not? If someone is reflecting the life of God, the character of the Lord, then... then that attracts, as uh, we've seen in, in other discussions, the, the, the presence of the Lord within a community. Right? And, and that gives a blessing. And here, the, the Lord will bless, uh, will bless you 
in all the work of your hands, whatever that may be. And none of that is actually described. I mean, it's all pretty vague. But, um, but uh, it's a very real, very real blessing. Um, there, let, let's ask the question, <clears throat> which is one of those questions that shows up in uh, the Christian world predominantly. Tithing is not in the New Testament. What do you say, guys? What's the answer? Well, what's your response? How's that? What do you think? Why are they always asking for money? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think it's not in the New Testament, but those darn televangelists always asking for cash. That's right, yeah. That's true. I think the principle that you mentioned that... Um, at, from that verse that, that that Jesus still upholds the principle in that verse about the dill and the coming and you know don't you know you're being skinchy on one part but you're denying the yeah, that's, in, that's in Luke chapter 11 that that incident 11, yeah okay well I think he still upholds the principle but some Christian churches now like Protestant ones that uh, that I've been around and stuff will say uh you know but now it can be like, because it's a love for God, it can be any amount. So, you know, 20%, 80%, like some people just give 80% of their income because they're so blessed. And so, right. yeah, so not limiting it in that, in that sense, but not, not giving anything. So exactly what you said, I agree with that concept that the human heart really needs to keep, you know, being prodded to do what they know is right. Cause it's so easy to just not right. And be selfish and distracted and idolatrous. And so, yeah. yeah. Yes, in the Second Temple period, tithing was already part of the community life. And so there are segments, there are things in the New Testament that are just not mentioned, right? For example, does Jesus say anything about homosexuality? He doesn't. But just because he doesn't say it, does that mean it's okay? Right, because there are things within the society that are already continuing, so there's no need to talk about it. Like Jesus doesn't talk about the land of Israel. Why not? Because he's in the land of Israel. It's not that he's you know he grew up in Babylon and you know he's got a bunch of disciples and more saying, "Well, I can't wait to get back to Zion." Um, he's already there. So there are there is a there is a contextual, cultural, and and time sensitive part. To this and so tithing um, is not directly mentioned by the Lord, although he does ad, uh, uh, ad, he admonishes the Pharisees for tithing inappropriately, and he does say some wonderful things about a lady, a widow who gave all she could, though it wasn't very much, and again teaching us that uh, giving and financial management are a spiritual issue. And seriously, if we are asking how much should we give, then um, that's actually a, a description of where our, our heart is. Rather, um, I think uh, all of this, including what Moses is saying, is that, um, that uh, the opportunity to give, the opportunity to bless, the opportunity to take care of the poor, the widow, the stranger, the, the non-Jew in our community, uh, and also to God and the work of his temple and his priests and yourselves in the presence of God is an appropriate use of our resources, uh, which are all finite anyway. And 
there be a blessing. God will return uh, our blessing to us. Um, Aaron, I, I love to, um, I love the passage in the Bible where they're contributing to the tabernacle. Yes. And um, Moses says, you know, whoever has, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring to the Lord's contribution, gold, silver. And it's, um, and, and it was a volunt it was voluntary. And what's amazing, their hearts at that moment were so joyous and so, they were happy to give it voluntarily to the point where you said, no more, <laughs> stop, yes. we stop. have enough. And I, the whole point for me, you know, talking about this is, how do we, how, how, what's the context for, for us today? It's, it's really, it's voluntary. It's from the heart. Uh, and, and it's so interesting that it just really reflects where you are spiritually um, to be able to love and give back. To, you know, he's given us so much. Indeed. Yep. And uh, yes, okay. yes, who's this? Bernardo. Um, who is it? Uh, no, Samson. Oh, Sam, Simshon. Go for it. Yeah, Simshon. Uh, so that. Okay. For me, I, of course, giving is very, very paramount to the relationship we have with God, and it shows how much we love Him. And of course, the more that you love, the more you give. Um, but in the Titan, it was specific. You know, there was an offering that was asked, especially the offering of the of the census and it says nobody should give more than half a shekel because in the offering of the census nobody should give more than half a shekel nobody should give less than half a shekel and it was very specific and nobody could do either way and also in the titan it is very specific so that Um, one will not do either way. If one wants to do something um, out of that, I, I think it should not be any more described in the Titan. It should be something that's okay. You're giving your tithe, then you're adding so much to it and um, doing um, uh, what we call a peace offering, which I mean, yeah. addition to the tithe and you give it. Um, the other place where it is mentioned that you give an extra with the Titan is when you, you, you actually eat the tithe without setting it apart. And later on, you try to retrace your, your step. And so you give one fifth plus the Titan. And that's the other place it's, um, it describes. It's actually a penalty for. Yeah. That you're right. There are there are lots of different uh, tithes in the text, and there is one that makes everybody equal, which is the half shekel, which is what you've said. Okay, yeah. poor, rich. God does not distinguish on this on this one. And I'll I'll find the in the notes. I'll I'll, I'll quote the exact um, reference that, that you brought up. Um, okay. It's rich, yeah. rich, poor, male, female, slave, free. We all got to bring the exact same mm -hmm. amount. Then there are other tithes that reflect um, on your, your, how God has blessed you. Obviously, if you bless more, you give more. But again, at the, at the end of the day, it's still a spiritual issue. And, um, and hence, Yeshua notes that when he turns around to the lady and says, look, she gives more, okay, and um, yeah. who only gave so very little in terms of monetary value, but because it was, it was from the heart. So... The, 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 the tithing and, and our attitudes have to be from a spiritual thing, but it still plays out in the physical. And so it would be, it would, it would be, it, it is, I think, I'm going to say, I must say, it's wrong for churches to turn around and tell, to tell other people, don't tithe. 
I think you, you're creating a very dangerous precedence for your community, both financially and spiritually. I remember having a discussion with a pastor in Australia. So this would have been a Lutheran pastor. And we were talking about how you go and plant new churches. How do, how do you go and actually set up new, new communities? And, and what sort of community do you need to be able to economically sustain a paid pastor? And he looked at me and he said, 10 righteous men. You get 10 men giving a tenth of their income should be able to pay the salary of one pastor. But, of course, that is very hard to find. And I think that and that creates this very interesting problem where what have we done in our society that we've lost the spiritual and physical component of the appropriate use of our money for the Lord? And, uh, and, and I guess those are questions we're all going to need to answer and ask for ourselves. But God says there's a blessing in this, Right. And you get that very that strong, strong message which you find in Malachi. Put me to the test. You know, don't test the Lord except in this. Right? You know, you cannot outgive me, says God. But uh, but part of the tithing, and I think Moses, remember, this is Moses when he's unpacking the nation of notion of tithing, makes sure that we take care of the weak. The society of God, a just society that is reflecting his character, that is reflecting the light to the Gentiles, to the nations, needs to make sure we're taking care of the weak within our communities. And that is going to speak absolute volumes to a world that really doesn't care. Okay, Bernardo, you've got a, um, a question. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, been thinking what you said about homosexuality. Yes, sir. But but Yeshua did speak about lawful and unlawful sex. Um, so maybe not specifically and directly about homosexuality, but he mentioned Arba matters and okay. marriage between a man and a woman. Sure. Yes. Um, yep, you're right, Bernardo. Uh, he does mention that. Um, and the, the reason I raised that discussion is that there are things that are not mentioned in the text exactly, but within the cultural milieu were already part of the, of the discussion and they didn't need to, to, um, to be expounded upon because there was no point. There was no need for Yeshua to turn around to his disciples and say, you can marry anyone who you like because that just was not part of the culture. And no Messiah ever, ever would have said such a thing. Although he does mention marriage between a man and a woman, which is which is good. All right, guys. Um, um, just one more before before you. Go. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go yeah. for it. It's um, very ironic, um, especially most um, most uh, new um, generation church that kind of say that the law is done away with. But yeah. the tithing, they don't do away with that. It's very interesting that many of them still emphasize a lot on the tithing. Yeah. And, and, and um, I mean, that's a good point. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that um, you, you, you did say, what have we done um, that you know, has made us to begin to question whether we should give to God and um, you know, give him 10%? I think 
One of the things is that um, a lot of um, church leadership have abused the, the tithing. Um, um, they kind of use it to, to, to lead very, you know, luxurious life, especially in the mega church life. And so um, in the mega church system, and um, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable to continue to give the tithes. I think that is one of the reasons. Uh, there could be so many other reasons some people might not be very comfortable with, and uh, some people will want to like to keep to themselves, of course. But I think one of the things that um, they've not been very comfortable with um, how it's been dealt with. And um, I could see a lot of sense in how the um, Orthodox Jews kind of treat the tithes because you don't um, center it in the hands of one man. Uh, yeah. You kind of, um, everybody from his hand will set it apart and be giving and be doing the, the, the good deeds. Instead of centering it on the hand of one man, then it's exposed this man to corruption. Yeah. I, I often enjoy, um, uh, I get blessed by when I'm walking behind Orthodox Jews and I'm walking into the old city, and, you, and there might be some Muslim beggars at Jaffa Gate. And these Orthodox Jews are reaching to their pockets, pull out a couple of shekels and make sure that they give each beggar something, even though they're Muslims. Because, you know, they're really trying to reflect on the, on the character of God. They might do it inappropriately in other ways, but in this way, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. I will say something from a, um, a personal family thing, which is um, from my father-in-law. Uh, may he rest in, in a blessed memory, is um, he, when he would, he was a, a landowner and, and ran a farm, and, uh, and he was also a very staunch Lutheran, and he would make sure that he would tithe, and not only that, he would keep land fallow on the seventh year. And, uh, and, um, and how did his farm prosper? did very well. And so when he retired and he sold his land, uh, he made a goodly portion of money. He could invest it in, in retirement homes and incomes, and then he could rest and bless all of his seven kids. Right? Um, and, so, and so you can see that God blessed the work of his hands. And uh, so there is, a, there is a spiritual aspect to this. So um, we all, we all, we all uh, need to think about it. And I, I really appreciate that, that point, Shimshon, that yes, we're not under the law, but everybody's still got a tithe. <laughs> what a very interesting uh, concept. All right. Guys, thank you very much for a great discussion. I hope I can write all those notes up for now. I think appropriately for next week. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.